This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And woo! Welcome back! We are back, baby! (laughs) Welcome back! We just had a little hiatus. That's right. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Even though it's February, Happy New Year! How's it going so far? So far, so good. I've got a kitchen. Okay. Uh, or half of a kitchen, which is nice. <laughs> good to know. Um, good to know. My, my oven is still going to be uh, not here until March or April. Oh, cool. But, you know, I've got cabinets, and I'm happy. And I've got, you know, cabinets and a couple of bathrooms, and that's all I've ever wanted in life. Oh, that is so exciting. It's snowing. It's cold. It's, like, nice here, so... Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, I am. Um, gotta tell you, it was nice to have a little bit of a break, wasn't it? We missed everybody. I mean, obviously, we missed all of you, and thank you for, you know, being around. Maybe you actually didn't know we took a break. Maybe they're like listening to this episode. Maybe this is your first episode. <laughs> <laughs> if so, welcome. We took a month and a half off. Well, also, you finished a book over the break. Yes. Oof, I did. I, I finished the book, sort of. Incredible. A lot of editing right now. Yeah. <laughs> Doing a lot yeah. of editing. I'll, I think I'll be actually finished, finished in the spring. So by the time you get your kitchen sorted, I will maybe have this book sorted. We'll see. Oh, okay. Then we definitely have to party. It's timpano party when oh my God. both of those things coincide. <laughs> One of the cool things that I did do during the break, which we have talked about on this podcast before, but actually precedes the formation of this podcast, because this was something that I did with you and a bunch of your friends like way before we started this and sort of around the time that I think I met you for the first time was the Uber list. Yeah. So we decided, um, Millie and I decided two things. We were going to challenge ourselves in two ways this year. One, we've given ourselves a deadlift Sonny Corleone challenge, and we're both going to get yoked. <laughs> Yo, the veins are going to be pop out of my shoulders, and y'all are going to be crying. I can't wait. I want muscles in, like, you know how, like, there, there's so many muscles that I don't know the name of because they're only on, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> like, I want those, like, under the armpit muscles and those, like, extra <laughs> neck muscles. <laughs> Like, we're getting yoked. (laughs) We're getting yoked. But also, we decided to do an Uber list together. And usually, I do it with a a bigger group. But I think that this year, it just made sense to do it with a smaller group of friends. So it's just a few of us. And I'm psyched because the the whole premise of the Uber list is that, first of all, it was created by Nicole Lore, who you might know as a knitter, if you're a knitter at all. She has a book called Naughty Needles, and she has a home slash work space 
called uh, the Harvey School Project, where she teaches classes, and she's just a phenomenal artist and creator and has made many patterns and all kinds of things. So she created it when she was the college roommate of my friend, Kelly Sue DeConnick, which is how I found out about the Uber list. And I realized this year that I've been doing an Uber list for almost 20 years. Whoa! Crazy. 20 years. And Kelly Sue introduced it to a bunch of us who were on the old Delphi forums. <laughs> is that like old? Is that old internet talk? <laughs> yes, it is very old internet, just a forum where a bunch of us nerds used to hang out. And so Kelly Sue introduced it to us there. And I've absolutely loved doing it every year. Sometimes I do it with people, sometimes I do it alone, but I do one every year. And the whole setup is basically that you you write down a list of 100 things plus the number of the year. So this year it's 121 things that you want to accomplish in the next year. Mm. And it sounds overwhelming, but it could be anything. It could be big things, small things. The purpose is to just get some movement in your life and in your year. So I break mine down into categories Yes, because that's how my brain works. <laughs> and I have like a home category and a whimsy category and a work category. But yeah, I just break it down. And sometimes it's it's small things like, you know, rewire a lamp and other things. It's big things like finish a screenplay or whatever. So... Yeah. No, it's so great because first of all, when I first did it, the first year that I did it, like I said, it was a long time ago. I feel like it was like 10 years ago or something. Yeah. And we were on this chain of like-minded ladies. There was a lot of people in the crew and we were all posting our lists to each other. We would redact certain things that we didn't want to be public. Like sometimes you have a goal that you don't want anybody else to know about. And we were allowed to, you know, basically not list it publicly, but it was in our list. And when I first came to the list, I was like, oh my God, a hundred and something things. What am I going to do? I don't know how to structure this. And I kept thinking of these like big goal things like Mm -hmm. climb, you know, a mountain in Yellowstone National Park or do something, you know, it was like all these crazy big things. And then when you kindly reminded everybody, I think it was you, you were like, It doesn't have to be these giant things. It can be like literally like get up on a different side of the bed tomorrow or like, you know, (laughs) use this glass in my kitchen that I never use. Like something that's like super manageable and almost kind of like dumbly manageable. I was like, (laughs) okay, let me just fill in the rest of this list with all these dumb things, right? However, accomplishing those dumb things, quote unquote, actually helped me tackle the other stuff because it was like that sense of accomplishment, even if it's so dumb and I just added it to fill out this list of tasks that I wanted to accomplish, even crossing off those felt like shit. I got some shit done today and this is awesome. So now I can do all the other things I want to do. Right. Absolutely. And you're building the habit of getting things done and you're building the habit of like having faith in yourself that you can get things done. There are some years where I'll start my list off by just looking around my house at everything that's bothering me. Yes. And I'm like, all right, like if this bothers me, fix it. Like get a new planter, fix that, make curtains or like I just look at things that bother me every day and take action on those small things. And it makes my whole world better because it makes my space better. So I kind of start off with you know, what do I feel like I need to do? But also, what do I actually want to do? Yeah. So it's it's 
a kind of a nice mix of a list. And I think that's why I've been doing it for so long, because it's all things I can accomplish. And I've, there's never been a year where I've accomplished every single thing on the list. So for me, it's more about building the habit every year and starting the new year off that way. Yeah. Like to start off the new year knowing that like this year I'm going to accomplish a few things. I used to put a lot of travel on there, but now I don't know if that's a roll of the dice or not. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think it's, you know, I'm I'm going to be getting my grandmother more settled into the into the house and a lot of my list will be, you know, family stuff this year and it never has been in the past. Yeah. But yeah, I'm excited because it's also, I don't know, it's also stuff like this year, I put it on my list pretty much every year. But this year, I actually already bought the yarn for it. And I want to knit a sweater for all the kids in my life because I just kind of want them to have something from me that I made with my hands. Yeah. And they're all such very, they're all getting bigger. That's why I decided to do it this year because I'm like, I will be making adult sweaters soon if I don't get on Like, let's do it while they, like, they can still fit in a sweater that's like one skein of yarn. <laughs> but that kind of stuff will I will do, and it'll make my day better. It'll make my world better. It'll make my relationships better. And it's such a small thing. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. That is exciting. And let me just tell you, I already crossed off a couple of things. <gasps> that means I've completed a couple of things on my Uber list. First of all, a lot of people, the last time we talked about the Uber list, I think it was like this time or before in January, I think it was last year. Yeah. A lot of people were commenting on the episode going, show us your list, like post your list. And I'm like, no. Uh-uh. We were both like, uh, those are private. And here's why they're private, except for our little crew, I guess this year. Yeah. Because one of my tasks was, so... I needed to find better storage for this giant dog head mask (laughs) that I bought last year for Halloween, but then forgot that I bought it and didn't actually, I I had a plan to dress up like my dog for Halloween and then I forgot. (laughs) So I have this mask, this giant mask, which if you want to see a picture of it, I'll post a picture of it. However, you better. Yes. It's actually showed up in meetings for this podcast before. I'll just say that. However, what ended up happening was I unpacked the mask. I, you know, brought it into our meeting and scared a few other people with the mask. And then I just shoved it in my closet in one of my guest bedrooms. So what would happen was I would open the door to the closet and forget the fucking mask was in there. And it would literally scare the shit out of me. Like I'd open the closet door and be like, holy fucking shit. And then I remembered, oh, that's because I just threw this mask (laughs) on top of a bunch of boxes. So it looks like this giant fucking dog monster is like chilling in my (laughs) closet. Okay. You know, what's killing me about this is that you had friends staying at your house over (laughs) holiday break. And I'm wondering, did you tell them about that dog head? <laughs> Hell fucking no. I forgot. I forgot. And, but it's also that thing where I'm like, well, why are you going through my closet anyway? Exactly. But if you do, you're going to get your pants soaking wet with piss. Because there's going to be a dog head in here that you don't know is going to be in here. But That's on you. That's on you. That is de- definitely on them. For snooping. But here's the thing. On my Uber list, I was like, Find another place to store this dog head so I don't fucking freak the fuck out. And guess what happened? What's up? Because of the Uber list, what I did was I 
wrapped it in uh, <laughs> tissue paper from like gift giving. <laughs> Call it a gift giving. I wrapped the head. Recycling. I love it. <laughs> I know. I was like, I got a lot of this shit. I might as well put it to good use. So I wrapped the dog head in the tissue wrapping, the gift tissue. And then I put a post-it note that said, this is a giant dog mask. <laughs> so that even when I went into the Rubbermaid bin that it's sitting in now, I wouldn't scare myself <laughs> like unwrapping a fucking present and being like, oh my God, there's a severed dog's head in here. So anyway, point being, beautiful. thank you, Danielle, <laughs> for making us do the Uber list this year. Thank you so much for everything that is involved with this list for bringing it into our lives. And now look, it's out there for our listeners. If you guys want to do an Uber list, there's still time. Yes. And thank you, Nicole Lore for creating it. Her last name is spelled L O H R. If you want guidance on how to do it as a group or how to organize it, you should contact her and not us. (laughs) Uh, We are not organizing a group (laughs) to do this. (laughs) This is something you are free to do on your own, but we are not in charge of. But yeah, I'm, I'm psyched. It's such a good experience. And I love that it's really communal. Like when we bring people into the experience, what I love, I love sharing the list. Like that's a really important part of it for me. Like I said, sometimes I do it alone yeah. some years, but this year especially, it just felt like sharing our lists and finding that commonality. And what ends up happening is we support each other through a lot of that stuff. Yes. So somebody will say, oh, I see this is on your list. I have that book. I'm going to send it to you. Yes. You know, something like that. Because I always have like, read this book on there. And it's just so nice to be able to say like, oh, I have a friend in that town that you want to go to. Like, I'll ask them for information or something. Right. Like, it's just nice. It's a nice support system. So I agree. Get some support systems going. And then we're going to be we're going to be supporting each other a lot this year because I will. I, my goal with deadlifting Sonny Corleone <laughs> is that by the end of the year, I'm starting out with two pound weights. I want to end the year with 50 pound weights. Yes, I, I totally agree. Maybe we can do something at the end of this year. Once we've completed all of our goals and we have begun to actually deadlift Sonny Corleone, we could get James Kahn if COVID has not taken our king. By the end of 2022, I say we have James Kahn on the podcast and we try to pick him up. We try to deadlift him. Oh, my God. We should do light as a feather, stiff as a board with Jimmy (laughs) Kahn. He'd be down for that, right? He'd be down for two strange women lifting his entire body off the ground. (laughs) Especially because he's like in hip breaking age. Like, I feel like he'd be down for it. Let me just go to this weird podcaster's house. And if any of you guys snitch tag him as we're talking about this, I will deadlift you. I will block you. I will come to your house and deadlift you. <laughs> in, a, in a menacing way. Don't so snitch tag Jimmy Khan in this because we want it to be a, a pleasant surprise. Yes. That we are going to lift him up. We want him to be surprised by <laughs> the strange ask. <laughs> Surprise, because uh, what I'm imagining is that we just show up at a restaurant, like the end of Misery style, and just lift him out of a chair. <laughs> and he's like, get the fuck off me. Get off me. You're like, sir. What the fuck? Put down the shrimp scampi. <laughs> we got to practice this. We have to know if we've reached our goal. And then you get the knees, I get the armpits, and we just lift him up. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's a fucking formidable plan, and I love, and I love every second of it. <laughs> I am psyched. Well, we also, we're coming back to the pod 
at the beginning of Black History Month. And I think both you and I last year were just so excited about our podcast and kind of overwhelmed that we really didn't like, we didn't really um, focus too much on a lot of monthly occurrences. Yeah. But I think we're going to try to fold more of that in this year. So if last year you wrote to us and you're like, hey, why didn't you do anything during Pride or why didn't you do anything during Bread Day or whatever? Like, <laughs> Every day is bread day in my house. So. Every day is bread day. And that's truly the spirit of our podcast as well. Every day is a reason for us to pick movies that are important to us, that are diverse, yes. that are inclusive. But we will definitely make more of an effort this year to pinpoint certain things at certain times because it is important. And it's, you know, there are some months or some holidays like National Sibling Day. Like there's just a lot of bullshit holidays out there now that we're not probably going to address but I'm down to throw something towards Women's History Month. Yeah. I'm down to throw something towards things that matter. Yeah. And last year we got like a really great response from the Black History Month episodes that we did. And we purposely tried to make the weeks sort of, you know, a mix of different types of Black artists, right? We did, yeah. you know, some that were more on the obscure end that we felt needed a spotlight, like people that we enjoyed, people that are kind of unsung heroes of Black art. And then we did super famous, commercially viable actors and creators like the Wayans Brothers. So we had, I felt like a good mix. And I feel like yeah. this month is going to be another great mix. I'm so excited to be talking about it this month. And we're kicking it off in such a great way. Uh, and I am so excited for this episode. I can't even tell you. Me too. And the origins of this episode came through when, actually, sadly, this director died. And I read about it on a film blog that I follow. And, you know, the news was all over the place in the film community. And I realized that I didn't know who that person was. And it made me really sad to think about what a breadth of work they had that I'd never heard about. Yeah. So I took it upon myself to kind of find out more about this creator. And thankfully, Millie is always game for, for trying out something new. Completely. Um, so this is the first episode that we're going to have where neither one of us had seen either of the movies before. Yep. And tell us who we're going to be focusing on today. So for our first episode to celebrate Black History Month... We are focusing on the writer and director, Menelik Shabazz. Yes. And like Danielle said, we have not seen either of these movies, which was so great. Like, I can't even yeah. tell you. Um, as somebody who, you know, has seen a lot of movies and who has thought that they knew a lot about movies... I am constantly delighted when I find somebody that I have never heard of or don't know much about and see their films for the first time. And this entire world just opens up, right? Yes. And that's exactly yes. what happened. So first of all, Daniel, thank you so much for bringing Menelik to me. Because like I said, I have heard little to nothing about him as a director and his life is so fascinating and his work is so incredible yes. and it just was this moment of like holy shit like where the fuck have I been and I can't believe I didn't know about this before and thank god I found out now because I have a world that has opened up to me and now I get to discover a lot of his work right I agree. I was actually, I was psyched. Like, you know, even though the initial, the initial reaction was sadness when I was like, fuck, how did I not know about this guy? He sounds incredible. Yeah. Now I'm psyched because there are so many films and to dig into. Yes. And 
to get to explore and and discover this incredible director and writer. And part of the disconnect, too, I think, is that Menelik Shabazz was a British film director, and he was actually considered like a pioneer of Black British independent cinema. And sometimes, you know, think of the people in the U.S. who are niche directors or, you know, niche independent cinema people who are not known worldwide, and that's part of it. But I'm going to take more of the onus of that on myself that I didn't, you know— That's just not something I ever looked into, and I should have, especially because I have a feeling that he, even if it was indirectly, I feel like he influenced a lot of the artists that we love. Yep. And one in particular that I'm going to kind of address in this kind of discovery process of who he is and explaining who he is. So Menelik Shabazz was born in Barbados. He and his family immigrated to the UK when he was five. And he became interested in film after he found some video equipment at his college. So it's very similar to Steve McQueen, whose family is, again, we did a whole episode on Steve McQueen. Um, Please go listen to it. It's called Sexy Living in Midair. But much like Steve McQueen, he wasn't necessarily groomed into being a director. He discovered his love of art and film that made him a director. And he enrolled in college in 1974, but he couldn't afford to keep going, like he couldn't afford to go. But he kind of learned enough in that first semester or that first blink of college to feel like, yeah, I want to do this. Like, I'll find a way to do this. And I just think it's incredible that that he just took all of this on himself and just created a, a tremendous amount of work from 1977 through to 2019, um, and almost right up until he, he passed away. And he passed away in June of 2021. Um, he died in Zimbabwe. And his life and his journey, and it, it's just been an incredible, he's just been an, on an incredible run. He had a lot of great films that he wrote and directed, but he also, in 1982, co-founded Kumba Productions with Imra Bakari, Henry Martin, Lizelle Daly, and Milton Bryan. And it was a production company intent upon supporting and promoting Black artists and Black filmmakers. And he also, in 1998, founded Black Filmmaker Magazine and the BFM International Film Festival. And I looked up a blog entry from a blog called Permanent Plastic Helmet from 2011. And Shabazz said... And I quote, BFM was the outcome of my frustrations in the film industry. I wanted to channel that anger into something positive, which initially started as a magazine, Black Filmmaker, and the intention to pass on information to the next generation about the film industry. One thing that was happening at the time was a lack of young people entering into the industry on a consistent level. End quote. And again, that's very similar to Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. who said there was a lack, there was a dearth, there was something that was missing. And so many Black creatives in his own life were not getting the platform that they needed to make their art. And I also found an interesting overlap between the two directors, because in 2011, Menelik Shabazz created what he called a fusion documentary called The Story of Lover's Rock. And Lover's Rock is like a romantic reggae, and it looks at kind of the Lover's Rock movement through interviews and and performance and archived footage. And Steve McQueen, for his Small Axe film series, as we covered in our episode, did a movie about Lover's Rock. What that means to me is, again, even if it's an indirect influence, I think that that is possible for that to happen. But I also think, 
in a larger scale, what it means to me is that I need to learn a lot more about the history of Black people in the UK Mm -hmm. and Black artists in the UK. I think that there are specific and tumultuous and important and defining moments that I just don't know about that have influenced all of these artists. Yeah, And so I'm kind of excited again, not just because... There's a lot to discover with Menelik Shabazz, but, you know, when you start going down that rabbit hole and seeing who he was creating with and who he was inspired by and who did the music for his films and who acted in his films, it's a very exciting discovery for me. (laughs) I think it's just very, very exciting. Again, he had a ton of films. Uh, One that we're going to discuss today, Burning an Illusion from 1981, was just so stunning to me. From top to bottom. Yeah. And there's an article, I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but there's an article on Mike.com from 2018 about the forgotten Black history of London's famous Notting Hill neighborhood, because Burning an Illusion was shot in Notting Hill and in Ladbroke Grove. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar or not, but in Notting Hill right now, most houses are going for four million pounds and up. Mm. And it used to be a black neighborhood. And we see very similar things happening in the U.S. Brooklyn, I'm looking at you, Mm. where we've taken a traditional black neighborhood and turned it into a playground for rich people and their children. I think it's important that, again, this work is also now a time capsule of a time when that neighborhood was completely Black or was traditionally Black. And I'm just, I'm excited to dig in and start talking about him. I think that he he was a phenomenal creator. He was ahead of his time, but he was also very much of his time. He was talking about things that mattered to Black people then and now. And again, to me, that just means that the struggle for inclusion and the struggle for respect continues. It's sad that it continues in the same way, but he's really adept at weaving in the events of human history into the conflict and the joy and the experience of Black life. Yes. And so much of what we talked about, too, last year when we did Black History Month is the concept of distribution and and seeing movies like the two movies that we're going to talk about today. And part of what I think is really interesting about the UK and about how there is this like Black filmmaker scene in the UK that I think a lot of American film people don't know about, let alone casual film, you know, fans. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is because of the distribution problem, which is that there there really has to be like a big push here in the States to get these international films available in this country and distributed in this country. And I feel like it's just so interesting when you know that like, there are probably so many instances of this in all pockets of this world where there are filmmakers making movies at specific points of time in other countries. And we don't know about them because they're not being shown in America. So I think that your film that you're going to talk about was and maybe still is on the Criterion channel. Yes. Mine, I had to find through a BFI thing. But that's kind of, I guess, the point is that like, in order for us to know people like Menelik Shabazz, we have to be able to see their films. And I think that we are always advocating for that on this podcast. And We're hoping that maybe by discussing him today and discussing pretty much everybody that we're going to talk about this month, it's going to, you know, maybe force the hand for that a little bit. You know what I mean? Completely. Oh, I could not have said it better. And I I cried last year, so we can place bets on what episode I'm going to cry on (laughs) this year. Listen, (laughs) 
we hold space for any instance of that. So if yes. the news strikes you, no one's going to turn away. But um, do you want to get started? You want to talk about these films? I'm just like, yeah, so excited to talk about both. And you're going first, so we can just jump on in. Yes. So my film for the theme of Menelik Shabazz is a uh, movie from 1981. It was written and directed by Menelik Shabazz, and it's called Burning an Illusion. I was 22, not doing too bad. I had my own flat, a steady job, but that wasn't enough. I wanted to settle down. Somehow, though, I never seemed to meet anybody I could really feel for. So, like I said in the intro to the theme, I went into this movie completely blind. I just read the synopsis and thought it sounded cool. And then when I watched it, like after it was over, I just can't tell you how much I loved it. Like I immediately went down the research rabbit hole. I was like looking at film books in my living room and like, (laughs) you know, going on all these like deep Wikipedia holes and YouTube holes looking for interviews and all kinds of stuff. It was honestly like a revelation for me. Yeah, same. I'll do a a quick one-sentence synopsis so we can really get into the movie. Burning an Illusion is about a young West Indian woman living in London who is navigating life and love and begins a slow transformation into pro-Black political activism. Beautiful. Yes. And here's the thing. So Burning an Illusion was actually Menelik Shabazz's first feature film. And it was partially funded by the BFI, the British Film Institute. And it was pretty much the first British film to focus on the life of a black woman. Yeah. Which is 1981. Shocking. Pretty crazy. (laughs) And additionally, it was only the second feature-length film made in Britain by a black filmmaker. Man. Yeah. Again, 1981. Wow. Yeah. And the first movie, the actual first movie that was made by a black filmmaker in Britain was a movie called Pressure. And it was made by another West Indian director, Horace Ove. And Menelik Shabazz was actually on set when Pressure was being made. And he said that it was a really big influence on him and it influenced him to make Burning an Illusion. And at this point, both these films, both Pressure and Burning an Illusion, are considered kind of landmark British films, not just black British films, but British films in general. They right. they are absolutely some of the best. And, you know, it's funny that you brought up Steve McQueen because I, when I was watching Burning Illusion, I could not stop thinking about Lover's Rock and Small Axe mm-hmm. because Burning an Illusion is also about West Indian young people living in London. And this film deals a lot with the racism and inequality that they face as immigrants, right? And that's, yes. a, that's a lot about what Small Axe is about. So I just got to say, like, this film really just hit me where I live. It's the, it's the movie, the kind of movie that I fucking love mm. in the same way that I talked about Kathleen Collins last year, but also directors like Eric Romer and John Cassavetes. It's this slice of life movie. It's about real people having real conversations and it just has a very natural pacing. And it kind of lives at this intersection between love and politics, which Mm -hmm. I think is pretty much an obvious choice that was made by Menelik Shabazz because he was an activist himself as Daniel spoke to in the intro. And the film, Burning an Illusion, is centered around Pat. 
and she is played by Cassie McFarlane. She's this modern single gal living in London. And one night she's out with one of her friends, Sonia, and she meets a guy named Dell, who is played by Victor Romero. They start talking, they start a relationship. And, you know, at first it's great, despite the fact that they have some differences. Dell works in a shop, he makes tools. And, you know, she seems to be more on a professional path. She works in an office. You know, she has her own apartment and he lives with his parents still. And at first, everything's okay. And then eventually, Dell gets into a fight with his folks and he ends up moving in with her. And I think she starts realizing, well, okay, I guess I'm going to have to be the responsible one in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she obviously is very motivated to get married and have kind of the, you know, middle-class life that she wants, like the nice TV and the nice stuff. And, you know, he's sort of like on the fence about it all. He doesn't know if he wants to get married. And at one point, as they're living together, he gets fired from his job because there is a white foreman who Dell claims is giving him a hard time and has been giving him a hard time. And he thinks it's because he's black, which is definitely a formidable assessment at this time, as we know, right? Completely legit. Completely legit. And Pat, on the other hand, she's so informed by this kind of idea of like, her class and her status, right? Yeah. She's just immediately like, this guy can't keep a job, and I just don't think he'll be the one for me. And they have a very rocky breakup, and, you know, there's a lot of physical fighting. She pulls a knife on him at one point, but then they eventually get back together, and it's at this club that they're at one night where there is this terrible incident between her friend Sonia and this, like, boyfriend that she has named Chamberlain, and Chamberlain is this, like, ladies' man. He's kind of the, like... Chamberlain's the worst! Chamberlain is the worst! (laughs) Yes, he's kind of, like, the leader of their, like, little gang, and he's just kind of, like... An asshole. He's got a lot of machismo. He's just kind of a nightmare. And he gets to talk to any girl that he wants. And Sonia is just literally has been talking to an old friend for five seconds of the opposite sex. And then Chamberlain sees it and freaks out. And they have this physical altercation outside of the club. And what ends up happening is that, you know, a group starts to form, including Dell, including all their friends. And then the police show up. And the police show up. And they're sort of, like, indiscriminately arresting people. Like, they don't even know what the fuck is going on, right? No, they're just like, here's some black people, let's arrest them. Exactly. And, you know, it's rough. They're roughing people up, and they have no idea what the situation is. They're just arresting everybody that's just out on the street who's black. And one of these people is Dell. And as he's getting roughed up by these white cops, he ends up fighting back, and he stabs one of the police officers who was basically beating him up. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, Dell is arrested. He ends up in the hospital because they've beaten him, right? And he goes to jail. And Pat is just beside herself at this point. I mean, she goes to her friends, Cynthia and Tony, who are sort of these like political activists. Cynthia is pregnant. And, you know, they're just sort of like, they're unlike Sonia. Sonia and Chamberlain are kind of the going out friends and Cynthia and Tony are their kind of more like intellectual activist friends, right? Yeah. And they're trying to help Dell out with this case because it's definitely complicated. Um, But he ends up getting a four-year prison sentence. And Pat, at first, is very unsure about how she wants to proceed with the relationship because she's like, four years is a long time. I don't really know what to do. And it's very tough. And honestly, 
I gotta say, I, these scenes of Dell in jail and Pat sort of like being on the outside, it really just sort of like presents this look at the way prison affects a couple in a way that I don't think I've seen before. I, I don't think I've seen, yeah. seen it like this before. Well, it affects more than just the person in prison. Right. And I think that was something that was unseen at that time. And really since, there haven't been a lot of movies that have dug into that. There have been a few, for sure. Don't DM me. Um, yes. But there haven't been a lot of movies that are that give you such an intimate look yes. at what it looks like for a partner. And it's fascinating to me that we get to see how Dell's imprisonment radicalizes Pat, but it doesn't happen overnight. Yes. But it happens very slowly, but very passionately. Yeah, because, you know, when Dell is in jail, he is asking Pat to send him revolutionary books, like mm-hmm. books about Malcolm X. And over time, the two of them together, Pat and Dell, just start learning a lot about prison reform and the struggles of Black people in the prison industrial complex. And it's just reigniting their romantic relationship, but also kind of reigniting like these missions that they have in life, right? Like these, yeah. this political activism that's like within them that has just been ignited by the situation that they're in. And there's this scene that I loved where Pat, comes home and kind of looks in the mirror and she starts taking off all of her fancy jewelry. She removes her lipstick. And in the next scene, you see her hair in braids and she's got this more natural look. And it's this Mm -hmm. really cool sequence where you can actually see Pat shedding this sort of like old life that she had as this like kind of material girl in London, like only concerned about money and the finer things. Right. Right. And I just felt like this entire movie was so was such a breath of fresh air to me because of the way that I was seeing this couple react to this prison sentence. And, you know, there was like a lot of scenes in this movie that I just thought were so gorgeous, like the scene at Carnival, which it it felt very Cassavetes in that it was like kind of shot on location with like real people and real events. There was like a real reggae band playing. And, you know, the music, of course, is so great in the film. Yes. But it was just such a great, like, in-the-moment type of sequence. And then there's the last scene of the movie, which, of course, I'm not going to give away Mm. because it's just too... This movie is too good. You just have to watch it. And the last scene of the movie really filled me with joy. It was just so wonderful and beautiful and joyous. And I just loved it so much. And it was just kind of the perfect ending to this film, which... I have never heard of before in my life. And I just watched for the first time because of this episode. And I just have to say, I mean, I am so thankful for, you know, just being with you and, and having the opportunity to watch these types of movies. I mean, you always joke about how I've seen everything and you've seen nothing. This is truly a moment where I think that you brought this artist into my life. Uh, And I just have to thank you for that. I mean, it's, 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 it was such a joy to watch this movie. I'm still, still deep into this research hole. Yeah. Uh, Cause of course now there's like other people involved, you know, I want to know more about all these other people that Menelik Shabazz came across and, I want to watch all of his films. I will do some dirty work if I have to, to to get some of these movies. (laughs) She's going on the dark web, folks. (laughs) I am going to go meet a guy in a strip club and pay $50 for a VHS tape. 
if I have to. <laughs> worth it. I it's so worth it. This this movie it was so gorgeous and like I said just a movie that I would absolutely love in the same way that I loved the Eric Romer movies when I saw them for the first time, when yeah. I saw Kathleen Collins for the first time, just like that, like very natural, organic slice of life film about politics, romance, relationships. It's so wonderful. Loved it. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. I always love, I love that about our, our friendship in any way that we are constantly introducing new things to each other. Yes. And this was again, new for me as well. And we had very similar reactions where I felt like, the movie was so uplifting, but it was also so raw and so visceral. Yeah. And it didn't allow itself to become mired down in one particular narrative, even though it's focused on one particular character. So you still get to see all of these different slices of life from their friends, from their families, from their work life, from the city life. And it really is special. It's a special movie. It's very special. And it's... There's something about, like, once Dell goes to prison, there's something about, like, like, Cynthia has this friend named Lorna that Pat meets when Cynthia gives birth. Mm-hmm. And Lorna is in a similar situation where her partner is also in, in prison. And they form a friendship around this. And it, that scene kind of kicks it off, but there's something about this whole film that is also truly about how Black women carry the fight and how Black women carry the struggle for justice. Yes. And, you know, what lands on our backs as people who are trying to uplift a whole group of people and a whole race. And that was very, it was very poignant to see it in this film. And again, in these very subtle ways and subtle tones. But the fact that this is a man presenting a female character in a movie and a female point of view is revolutionary in itself. The fact that he was able to do that and hit all these notes of actually acknowledging the truth about what Black women go through. Yeah. That was important to me because it didn't feel like there was the male gaze there, truly. And that was weird. Like, it felt like it was definitely not from a male gaze perspective. And I was shocked. I was shocked by that. Which isn't to say that he doesn't focus on the men in the film in an equally interesting way. I was just shocked that the main character was portrayed in a way that felt very real to me at present date. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it's just, it's such a special, great, wonderful film. I mean, considering that's his first movie, it's so remarkable. And it just, it, it was just such a joy to watch. And I'm, I just encourage everybody to seek it out. I mean, I think you can get, even though I did go through the BFI, I think that there are ways to get BFI movies through, you know, like the Amazons and the kind of that kind of stuff. So please seek it out. It would be amazing if somebody did some like incredible restoration work on this movie. Man, they could have a fucking Blu-ray 4K restoration of this film. Like I said, I don't know if I'm invoking it or it's already happened. I don't know. But like, (laughs) I'm just going to say it would be amazing to see in a restored version. Yes. And the BFI is the British Film Institute, for those who don't know. Right. Oh, God, what a great film. Well, I cannot wait to hear you talk about your film, quite honestly. Oh, boy. Well, I'll say this. I'll introduce the film. <laughs> Which is it's not a shock. I, I, I like how I teed that up. Like, I'm going to say something intense here right now. <laughs> no. I'll introduce the film, and then I'll explain 
why I don't have a one sentence synopsis. A hundred percent. Gotcha. <laughs> the film that I chose to examine the work of Menelik Shabazz was released in 1988. It was written and directed by Menelik Shabazz, and it is called Time and Judgment, A Diary of a 400-Year Exile. I heard the call of time. 400 years exile in Babylon. There, I kept a diary of the things I saw. Okay, so part of the reason why it was very difficult for me to come up with a one-sentence synopsis is, as the title indicates, the film is a documentary film, but it's presented in a very new way, and it really does cover... 400 years of African existence and Black existence. And it's hard to come up with a synopsis for something that far-reaching and encompassing. But what I will say is I will read... Uh, so when, when I watched this film, it was available on the Criterion channel. It may still be. I'm not sure. But I'm going to read a little bit of the description that they gave to kind of help you, at least center you in what this movie is. Because it deserves to be watched, but it is like nothing I've ever seen. Mm. So from the Criterion channel, they say, This genre-bending sci-fi documentary from pioneering filmmaker Menelik Shabazz spans 400 years to tell the story of the African liberation movement. Chronicling the tribulations and triumphs of people of African descent in and out of Africa with a special focus on the struggles of the last century, Time and Judgment features exclusive footage of movements in the Caribbean, Africa, America, and Europe, and offers critical political analysis of a bunch of leaders. Okay, so that's me paraphrasing that at the end because I don't want to ruin who's in the film because mm. uh, we're going to talk about it. But they go on to also say, a blending of theater, poetry, music, and painting, the film establishes a connection between biblical prophecy and the times we are living in leading to a final confrontation between the forces of greed and love. And I know that's a lot, so maybe rewind that if you have to. <laughs> but I'll sum it up. I'll sum it up. It's basically a – it's true what the Criterion Channel says. It is a genre-bending sci-fi documentary. And the first five minutes and last five minutes of this film will make you think you are tripping on acid, 100%. Like, if you were coming into this film with no knowledge of it like I was – it is absolutely the kind of movie that people would put on at a party in the 80s or 90s while they were high and be like, isn't this so cool, man? Like, look at the colors. <laughs> because it starts with these kind of gods, you know, like chanting and you're blowing shells and there's lots of imagery and pyramids and there's a scale with one side of the scale has a big heart on it and the other side has money. And there's just a lot of imagery here. And these kind of gods are talking about Earth. And how they're going to send out these final warnings. And that some of them have masks and some of them are draped in different garments. And it is really wild looking. Like, it is truly wild looking. So at the start of the film, after all the imagery kind of sets the tone, the movie shifts and the narrator says that he's going to give a diary of the last eight years in order to explain the last 400 years of exile that people of African descent have experienced. And it starts out in Zimbabwe in 1980 when Robert Mugabe is elected. 
and talks about the importance of that political movement, the importance of freedom. And um, as, as the film will do multiple times, it really does talk about how most African cultures and most African nations have had to fight incredibly hard to free themselves from the grip of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And so he starts with Zimbabwe and mentions that Bob Marley was there at this inauguration and talks about how important Rastafarianism is, which will you will see a lot of in this film. Mm-hmm. But he also talks about in this film the coronation of Haile Selassie and the rise of the Rastafarian movement. So if all you know about Rastafarianism is dreadlocks and Bob Marley, please feel free to read literally anything else or watch literally anything else yeah. because it is a really pointed and beautiful movement that is about people who are connecting to themselves through the connection to the earth. And essentially, he's talking about Haile Selassie's coronation as the end of the white colonial domination. But prior to that, he also goes through and talks about slavery and the African diaspora and basically explaining how slaves made their way to America and I say that as if they like took a road trip as slaves were stolen from Africa and brought to America. Mm-hmm. And there's this one line in that part of the film where he says, you took my language, but not my drum. And it's so important and poignant. And he does this again, like as a filmmaker, the thing that I'm finding so fascinating about him is that he's able to blend these very deeply poetic moments as a way to explain something that we think we know about. So he brings a lot of emotion to a situation where you think you know about it, or you think you can encapsulate it. And he just does it in a very deft and succinct way. And I just love that that explanation. And he also talks about Grenada and how the CIA interfered with that election, which which, you know, leads him to talking about how America has interfered with a lot of elections and has interfered with a lot of political movements in Africa and in African cultures mm-hmm. uh, as a way to keep them down. Uh, and he doesn't pull any punches about it. And again, like to give such an in-depth view of this through actual news footage and through actual speeches and through actual video changes the game. Like you cannot ignore or turn away from what he's saying because he's telling this in a very narrative structure year by year, but he's weaving together the ends of the stories. So we kind of, I think I mentioned that when I was talking about the OJ 30 for 30 documentary, when we did the set it off Delman Louise episode. But the thing that really rang true to me about that documentary, which again, I feel like was even loosely, if not directly inspired by Menelik Shabazz and by time and judgment, because they use the story of OJ to tell the story of the LAPD and what was happening with racism at that time in the city. And again, it's just, this film was released in 1988 and it was way ahead of its fucking time. Nobody was telling a story like that, that I can remember at all. I have a lot to say about this documentary, obviously, because I feel like it's what it comes from this, like, I think part of what you mean is that it comes from this, this very small tradition of, of documentary films that are basically rejecting this sort of like formalist documentary filmmaking method, right? This, this narrative structure of like, this happens, then an interview happens, then it really kind of reminds me more of kind of like avant-garde documentary filmmaking, kind of like Chris Marker 
or something. You know, it's it's yeah. it's taking a lot of different things, news footage, but also kind of like set pieces, like at the very beginning, especially, and kind of putting together this like collage of images that's also trying to tell a story and to, much like the OJ documentary, try to weave sort of the political aspects through the visual medium of collage, essentially. Yes. And it's just, it's so, so cool. It's just such a cool way of making a documentary that I, w- I was blown away by it. No, I, I completely agree. I think you're absolutely correct that it was it was really stunning. Like, that's the only word I can think of is stunning to see that mix of art. And there, there are these different moments in the film where you'll see, and this is kind of the theatrical component, where you see these two actors in front of the same backdrop, and they're talking, and sometimes they're singing to each other, and sometimes they're, you know, moving with each other uh, bodily, but they're acting. like It's like a play has been dropped into the documentary, almost, right. as a way to explain or sum up what we've just seen or what we're about to see. And it's so beautiful because even though it's dropped in, it doesn't feel out of sync at all with what's happening. And the paintings and the poetry and it's like Shabazz used every tool in the box to tell this incredibly complex story. And that's what was needed to tell this incredibly complex story is to use every tool of creativity at your disposal. And he did it again in a way that didn't feel heavy-handed. It did feel informative. I walked away from this film with a list of things to read and watch like I have never had before. And he talks about the Caribbean and he talks about Marcus Garvey and he talks about Kwame Turi. He talks about Walter Rodney of Guyana. And, you know, prior to this, and this again is my own shortcoming, what I knew of Guyana was Jim Jones. Exactly. Me too. And, you know, I didn't know anything about Walter Rodney. And that's my fault. That's my fault. So it really just inspired me. You know, he also talks about Jesse Jackson in this film and shows this footage. It inspired me to learn more about African cultural history in a way that was never explained to me in school or in books. But it also gave me, I think, a really good foundational start for understanding why we're still going through some of these same struggles in the U.S. and what struggles have come before and what have leaders said before, what have citizens said before, what have people said before to help them through these moments? Because I think I need that now. I really need that right now. I'm at a point where I don't really discuss my politics online anymore. People know what they are and that, you know, I don't hide from what my politics are. I just don't find joy or relief in discussing that with people anymore. Mm -hmm. So I don't. I don't. It's like I was saying to you the other day where I feel like, you know, I live in a place where if I miss a turn or I'm lost, I can't just turn around in someone's driveway because I'm black and I wear a head wrap most days. And I could get shot (laughs) just turning around. These are the thoughts that go through my head. I could get shot, and I know it's extreme. I could get shot just trying to turn around after I missed my turn. And... There's no one I can talk to about that. And there's no way for me to express the kind of ongoing grief that I feel with that. So this film rocked me in so many different ways because it made me feel like there is a conversation that I can be part of, even if it's not a vocalized conversation Mm -hmm. with people in my life anymore, that I can be part of a conversation of exploring and explaining the pain of 
how people treat Black people in the U.S. and African people, but it's also given me a real jolt about the joy that comes from the struggle and the joy in seeing people fight and the joy in seeing people join a political movement, even if they weren't groomed to be politicians. So I just found this film to be incredibly inspiring. Again, the first five minutes might be a little different from what you've seen before. Um, (laughs) They felt like a, uh, when I first turned it on, I was like, wow, this is kind of like a Alejandro Jodorowsky film. It's very, you know, there's a lot of costumes and a lot of sort of like big images, but then man, it just really takes off from there, right? It takes off and you owe it to yourselves to to also discover this kind of history and, you know, to also dig into this as a way to understand maybe what people like me feel, if that's something that's interesting to you. Because I'm tired, man. I'm fucking exhausted. I am exhausted with trying to teach people how to be okay with Blackness. Mm-hmm. And either my Blackness or Blackness in general, it's a full-time job and I'm tired. You know, I, again, like I had these guys at my place the other day doing some work for me in the pest control department. And I went out and got him coffee. And when I came back, uh, the one guy looked at me and he said, what are you? We've been trying to figure it out. Mm. And that's like in my own home in 2022. What are you? We've been trying to figure it out. Like, that's just a normal question he feels like he can ask me. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's just, I don't know. Again, like, I don't have space anymore to talk to people about this in a way that connects me to them. I could be angry if I wanted to be angry. I could pop off. There's plenty of places to pop off. There's not a lot of places for connection. So I appreciate art that makes me feel like I have that connection. Yeah, I do too. And I'm, I'm, I'm just so glad um, that we decided to undertake this black history month. I mean, like we say black history month is every day, but being able to really like put a hyper focus on somebody like Menelik Shabazz, like seeing a movie like Time and Judgment, like I said, a documentary at the core, but also so much more than that. Just like this mm-hmm. incredible like piece of art, like this collage of images and Afrofuturism and history. And it was such an amazing discovery for me to see this and to just find out more about Menelik Shabazz. I mean, honestly, part of like what I hope will happen this month and I hope has happened with this episode is that it'll make people curious because that's all we want is we want you to have the curiosity to watch movies and to go into these depths of discovery that aren't just like obvious things. I mean, this isn't an algorithm that is presented to you on a streaming service. This is like, you know, finding the crevices of film culture and film history and black culture and black history and just finding joy with the discovery. We just hope that that happens this month. And I just, it happened for me and I host this damn podcast. So there you go. Exactly. (laughs) It happened for both of us. It happened for both of us. Yeah. And it was, I'm again, like so lucky and I feel so grateful that you are just like just so along for that ride because when I when we originally talked about this this summer it was genuinely just a conversation that was like hey have you ever heard of this guy like he just passed away and I'd never heard of him before and just being able to have 
that conversation with you and and to feel safe enough to kind of say to you, like, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know about this and I'd like to know more, kicks off something really great that I think is is enhanced my life and, you know, hopefully will enhance the lives of our listeners. But I'm just grateful that I can have those moments with you as a friend because it makes my life better. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm glad that you that's how you see me because I absolutely feel like this is a place for us both to do this type of thing, like to both discover things and to not have any ego about not knowing. Yeah. Because that's the thing is that I, I'm, I'm coming from the other side of it where I feel like, okay, maybe I should have known this guy. I've been working in film history effectively for the past 20 years of my life and I'm just now discovering things for the first time. And I have no arrogance about that. Honestly, yeah. I don't purport to know everything about movies and I don't think anybody can. Yeah. If they do, then they're lying because everybody <laughs> has gaps and everybody has, has feels those moments of shame where they're like, shit, I should have known about this. But honestly, for me, I'm just so happy to learn. Like, I don't care yes. about not knowing. I just want to learn the things that I don't know. So Completely. this has been such a great episode for us and we both are now older and wiser people. So for that, I'm happy. Very true. And this is the, it's also the whole reason we're doing the podcast is to have moments like this for ourselves and for other people that we want people to not feel bad about not knowing things about film. Yes. Like we're all in this together. We just want, we want you to discover film in the same way that we do. And this is one of those moments where we can show you what that looks like. So thank you for being along for that ride. Yes, and I have to say, just uh, to give you a little teaser about the rest of February, we've got some really great episodes. Like, hopefully, Danielle and I have made good choices that are going to speak to the different types of Black filmmakers and Black artists, from somebody like Menelik Shabazz to somebody super-duper famous that we'll do an episode about in a few weeks. <laughs> yes. But we're excited to bring it to you, and... um I can't wait for the next couple episodes. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be incredible. Do you want to actually give them a little teaser and tell them what the next movies are going to be for next week? Oh, man. I am so excited to tell you. The movies for next week are Love and Basketball from 2000 and Brown Sugar from 2002. Oh, guess the theme. Ooh. Some of you are very, very smart about guessing themes, but try to guess this theme and definitely watch these movies. Definitely. Please do. If you don't watch anything but this month's movies, <laughs> I, I guess I'm okay with it. Normally, I will wag my finger, but if you just watch these, I think we'll be okay for at least the time being, right? Yeah. Eight movies. We'll, we're, we'll take it. It's all you gotta do. <laughs> well... Listen, if you enjoyed what you heard today and you want to give some thoughts about Menelik Shabazz or if you just want to email us, please do so at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And you can also find us on our social media. So if you want to, again, write to us, like if, if you have a, a history of Menelik Shabazz, if you went to school with him, if you <laughs> grew up on his films, reach out. Let us know more. We're, we're craving more. But you can reach out to us about anything on our socials. We are at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's right. And we've got merch. If you are so inclined, it's in the Exactly Right shop at ExactlyRightMedia.com. 
And, you know, we've been doing this for, for a little while now, but there's always room for a little more. And to fill that reason for you or to fill that purpose for you, we decided to do some bonus episodes. So there's a grip of bonus episodes available only on Stitcher Premium exclusively. And you can use the promo code SAW for a free month. That is right. Check it out. Danielle, so grateful to be doing this podcast with you. It was a great episode. It's going to be a great month of movies, and I'm so excited. Me too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is going to be great. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. See you next week. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. You can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. <laughs>